everybody. We are back for another edition of Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and we are so glad to be back with you once again. Kevin, why don't you introduce our topic for the evening? What are we going to be talking about? We are finally going to be talking about the head covering. I know we have talked about this over and over, and we've alluded to it, and we've mentioned how we're going to do an episode, and I think the last seven or eight episodes, we said, yeah, we're going to do an episode on the head covering one day. So we finally decided, you know what, we're going to go ahead and knock this thing out. Yeah, this is something that's interesting because this is, in a lot of ways, is a throwback to my Pentecostal days because... I was introduced to this topic at a very young age. It's not something that my parents ever averred. It's not something that they ever just really said, yeah, this is the way it is. I had some family members that did. I had an aunt who who believed that this was the case. And we had several people in the church I grew up in that believed that this was the case. And it was really surprising to me whenever I became a member of the Churches of Christ, whenever my wife and I got together, that this was a doctrine that I saw being promoted within that particular group of the Churches of Christ. And Kevin, as I understand it, within the mainline Church of Christ and even in the non-institutional and some of the other um, groups of the Churches of Christ, this isn't really a doctrine that's promoted very much at all, is it? No, it's very easily brushed aside and dismissed in the more mainstream churches of Christ. Now, I will say there are a few people within the mainstream churches of Christ. Wayne Jackson, he was a prominent figure in the mainstream churches of Christ. Um, He has uh, unfortunately passed away, I believe, just a, a year or two ago. A great Bible scholar. I definitely would say now I disagree with him on a lot of his approaches and conclusions, but he was someone, even though considered to be a part of the mainstream churches of Christ, believed in the uh, head covering, believed that women should wear veils. And this was something that he practiced or his family practiced, of course, and something that he taught, but he never enforced it. He never made it a point of contention of, of when it came to fellowship. And I found that very interesting because this was something he wrote about. He was very convicted. This was a subject he was very convicted on. And this goes back to what you and I talk about constantly And that is the arbitrary nature of how people pick and choose what they want to make issue out of and what they what they don't. And quite frankly, because he identified more with the mainstream churches of Christ, he didn't make issue out of this, even though he was very convicted on the issue. Well, and I think that's a testament to Brother Jackson. And like you, I admire his his zeal for the Lord. I admire his his study and the work he did and the works that he published. And and though I, like you, tend to disagree with that approach in general and some of the conclusions, you can't deny that the man had a drive and a love for the Lord. And it's interesting to me that he took the veiling position. There are certain um, brethren within the One Cup Churches of Christ through history that also took the veiling position, but it's been my experience that the majority of those preachers that are more prominent take the view of the uncut hair doctrine. Yep, and so that's this, right. So this idea of the covering, like you and I have alluded to over and again, we have talked about this. We have touched on it here and there. I've used it as as an example in in discussing why my perspective has changed related to God's grace. And so, like you said, we're finally going to get right into it tonight. Yeah. Well, and this is something before we jump in, I know this is kind of a little bit later in the notes we've, we have written out, but I want to give an argument that you can go ahead and refute for us real quickly, if you would like, because this is in the notes about how most of the mainstream 
Churches of Christ dismiss the head covering. So can, can I do that real quick and then allow you to go ahead and refute that? It'll just take a couple of minutes. Well, let's, I, I think I know or what you're want, getting you at. If you're, if you're referring to verse 16, yeah. let's go ahead and read the passage for the, okay. just for the interest of, of our listeners. And then we'll start with that and then we'll move on. Okay. Sounds good. All right, cool. So I'll be reading from the English standard version and the covering in question, this doctrine comes from first Corinthians 11 and verses two through 16. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul says, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now I want to take a little break here in verse 3. The King James, New King James, and other translations say the head of woman is man in verse 3. The English Standard renders it the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And we'll talk about why that's the case as this unfolds. Verse four, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife or woman, as other translations say, who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For, a, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife or woman, as some translations render it, ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is also born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife or woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, there's a lot in this passage to unpack, and there are several difficult passages here that I believe become far less difficult when we understand the context and the framework that these passages emanate from. Specifically, Paul's argument from nature, the idea of her hair given to her for a covering. And then finally, this idea that I think you're getting to in verse 16, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. Yeah. So do you have anything else to say or do you want me to go ahead and line up what what I was taught to believe. Well, I just want to let folks know our intention is to try to cover all of this as concisely yet exhaustively as we can. We hope not to bore you to tears with all of this. Kevin finds it interesting. I find it interesting and hopefully you guys will find it interesting too. But in, in light of that, Kevin, how was it that whenever you were still operating within that legalistic fundamentalist paradigm that you would dismiss this idea of a covering, whether it be the hair, a veil or anything else? Yeah. So it was really, it was very easy the way that we were taught to dismiss this, which, which made it seem like anyone who actually believed that women needed to wear a veil or that women needed to have long hair as a covering today just seemed ridiculous because of the way we were taught to understand this first. So 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen, Paul ends this whole discourse by saying, well, if, if anyone is, and depends on what translation you use, but I always used New King James growing up. So 
my version growing up said, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the other churches of God. So I interpreted this to mean, and I was taught that this meant Paul was saying, well, I'm telling you all this stuff, but this really isn't our custom. We don't have this custom. You don't have to do this because none of the other churches of God do it either. So it's okay. You don't have to do it. And I really didn't even think twice about it because when you aren't trying to challenge yourself, any answer seems like a good answer. <laughs> so when, when <laughs> you're like, well, we don't wear head coverings, why? Well, Paul says we don't have to in 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen. It's like, oh, okay. Well, Paul says that they didn't have a custom, so we don't have to today. And I never really looked into it, but this is a horrible misrepresentation of what Paul is saying, isn't it? Absolutely. And one of the things, it becomes apparent if you look at this in some other translations, and I'm for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it because this is probably going to end up being a lengthy episode, but um, several prominent preachers within the One Cup group, I believe, even though I disagree with so many of the people that, that I grew up hearing, or I, I say grew up hearing, that I came up within the One Cup group hearing, even though I love them and respect them tremendously and disagree with them on a lot of different things, I think and believe that they are 100% on the mark whenever they um, extrapolate meaning from verse 16. The Apostle Paul isn't, it makes no sense for Paul to say, all right, let me line all this out for 14 verses here. But in this very last <laughs> verse, you know what? All that crap that I just said, eh, don't worry about it. If you don't like it, you don't have to worry about it. He never does that anywhere else. It just doesn't make sense for him to do that. The custom. No, that, that doesn't Paul, make any sense. That no. and, and, you know, when you think about it more than five minutes, why would Paul spend a good part of of this chapter in his in his letter, which they didn't have chapters, of course, back then we do, but a, a good portion of his letter writing about something that he would only then turn around and say, ah, it doesn't matter anyway, forget everything I just said. Well, there's there's two different ways in which First Corinthians eleven sixteen is viewed within context, and I like one of them more than the other. It makes more sense to me. Number one, the first way, and this is a way that I heard, and I think that it kind of works, but I think the other way is better, is that whenever he says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The idea is that we have no other practice is what he's saying. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice than what I just told you, nor do any of the other churches. This is what we do. This is how we do it. A better reading of that, which seems to fit what I understand, I'm no Greek scholar by any stretch, but from what I do understand of syntax and from what I've studied, I think that the second way that this is parsed out makes more sense. And you end up with the same conclusion. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we don't have a practice of being contentious about this. This yeah. isn't something that's up for debate. This isn't something that's up for discussion. If anyone is wanting to argue about it, it's not our habit to argue about these things. We're not going to argue about it. This is how it works. So contextually, that makes way more sense, especially since Paul goes through the process and the trouble to make his points and establish these points related to the covering, whatever it may be. So if someone's thinking, why are you even talking about this? Whenever Paul said, we have no such custom, you don't have to worry about it. It's all good. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And the contention is, or, or the custom that they don't have rather, is being contentious. I believe that's the best reading and the best application of that passage. Yeah. No, that that makes sense. I mean, and 
you know, Paul, it would make a whole lot more sense for Paul to end with that by saying, hey, if anyone wants to agree, uh, disagree with what I'm saying, if anybody wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice. This is the way it needs to be done. And, and the other churches of God don't have any other practice. This is the way it needs to be done. That makes a whole lot more sense. And a lot of translations actually translate it with that understanding anyway. Yeah, I believe the NIV is one of them that translates it that way, and it really makes it more clear. But yeah, it actually the, says if if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And uh, the NLT also says, but if anyone wants to argue about this, I simply say that we have no other custom than this. That really brings out the original. Yeah, and it, it makes sense, and it and it honors Paul and his point that he's trying to make regarding the covering. And this idea gets kind of into what we're going to discuss and what we're going to kick off with is the idea of whether or not the admonition that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, whether this is something that is universally applicable and timeless for all time and all Christians in all times, places, and cultures, or whether this is a culturally situated admonition that Paul gives to the church in Corinth. Because, I mean, he's speaking of a custom. He's speaking of a practice that they're engaging in. So there are people who point to this verse in verse 16, and this is one of, for lack of a better term, the proof text that they use to illustrate the idea that this is timeless, that this is something, that this is a commandment that is intended to be upheld for all eternity. And they also point to verse number two, where he says that, I commend you. He's commending the church that they remember him and everything and they maintain their traditions. They maintain the customs. They maintain the practices. Whatever word you want to use, just as he delivered them to the church there in Corinth. And then he goes on to illustrate what these customs are and then explain those things. And in this, we alluded to this passage in the past to discuss praying and prophesying. And that's going to play a role in how we understand what the covering is. But the Apostle Paul is referencing women that are praying and prophesying. Whenever we talked about women's roles, and we talked about this with Dr. King, we talked about this with Brother Wes, and you and I talked about this in the episode we did on why we changed our view on women's roles, this is a passage that's very, very important. But in the background, going on in the background of this passage, this passage elucidates and demonstrates that women were praying and prophesying in a public capacity, but that's not the point that Paul's making here. The main point that he's making has to do with head coverings. And whenever you look at this idea of, of a head covering that women should wear and men ought not to wear, there are three primary positions. And I'm sure there are some other fringe, fringe ideas that are out there. If there are, I'm not accustomed to what they are. I'm not aware of what they are, but there probably are just with the interpretive pluralism that exists in Bible study today. But the three primary positions that many Christians believe 1 Corinthians 11 is talking about are, number one, that women are to be covered when praying or prophesying, and that covering is a veil. The second position is, is that women are to be covered when they're praying or prophesying, and that covering should be long hair. The third position is women are to be covered when praying or prophesying, and that covering is uncut hair. Now, whether or not this is a cultural phenomenon or a timeless universal practice will be kind of where we kick off with this. But the position that I held for a very long time, and I didn't really ascribe to this position until I was baptized into the churches of Christ, is that the covering is uncut hair. 
And the reason why I believe that was the case is because, number one, I had already been conditioned to have an awareness of what this doctrine was. I'd already heard it before in my Pentecostal upbringing, even though I didn't ascribe to it then. And even though I didn't believe it then, I had still heard it before and I didn't find the explanatory power or the positions that were offered or the reasons offered in my Pentecostal upbringing to be very convincing. Whenever I became a member of the Churches of Christ in the One Cup group and heard various preachers preach this from the pulpit, their reasoning made sense. And we'll go through some of that reasoning as this unfolds. So I adopted this and believed it to be truth and even preached on it and even stirred up some trouble in various congregations I was at. I mean, Kevin, you probably don't know anything about that at all. No, um, I was a, a little angel. I have no idea what that yeah, would be like. Yeah, no clue at all <laughs> whatsoever. But I mean, and and now looking back on it, and you and I were kind of talking about this before I hit record, man. You know, I looked at some of my old sermon notes from a sermon that I gave on this as recently as 2014. And... I mean, I look at that and I think of the angst, the anger, the confusion, the despair, the doubt that may have been placed in a Christian sister's mind. And brother, I cringe at the thought. I cringe at the idea. I mean, it goes without saying I don't ascribe to the uncut hair position any longer. But I did, and I preached on that just as militantly as I preach on anything else, because at the time, I believed that it was a timeless, universal practice, that it was something that God revealed through the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul that should emanate throughout time. And it's a practice that our Christian sisters should engage in today, because if they don't, it's not comely for a woman to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. And if she cuts her hair, she's lost her covering. And if she's lost her covering, well, then her prayers aren't being heard. We can infer that that's the case. And just to think that I may have played a role in instilling doubt in the minds of a Christian sister about her status in the eyes of Jesus, man, it breaks my heart. It it messes with me. It bothers me. But in any case, I believe that this was a timeless universal practice. And one of the reasons I believe that this was a timeless universal practice is because of the argument from hierarchy. In, in the opening statements that Paul makes, he says that the head, um, well, let me get back up here to it. He says, I want you to under, understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. So you have this hierarchy that's established. You have God, Jehovah, God, the father, supreme above all at the very top of the list. You have Christ under God's authority. God is Christ's head. He is under the authority of God the Father. And then you have man who is under Christ's authority, and then you have woman who is under man's authority. Now, in this sense, this argument from authority is something that perpetuates throughout time. And whenever Paul argues from the very beginning in uh, verses 7 and 8, and he speaks of the created order, and he speaks and goes back to the garden story where men came from and where women came from, woman came from man, and now man comes from woman, et cetera, et cetera. The apostle Paul is rooting his argument from my perspective then in the created order. He's rooting his argument in the fundamental reality that there is a hierarchy of authority from God to Christ to man to woman. This is something that transcends time. It's something that transcends culture. So it's something that still sticks today. And with that being the argument that Paul is making, and that being the root of his argument or the foundational theory that undergirds his argument, 
well, then this is a practice that should continue today because it is universal. So if he had been speaking from from mere first century customs, if his goal were just to establish something based on the custom of the day, then why would he appeal to the divine line of authority, the order of creation, the angels later on in the passage, and then the natural order, make his argument from nature or, or of decency? You know, why would he do that? That's the framework that I operated under, and that's the understanding that I had of this passage. That's why that there are very many people within Pentecostal groups and within the One Cup Churches of Christ that believe that a woman should wear uncut hair because of the foundational aspect of the argument Paul makes. It's something that's eternal and it's non-negotiable. Yep. Yeah. And, and you know, you and I, we have had discussions about this uh, prior to both of us changing. We used to, I think, just talk about it a little bit. You and I never really got too controversial because I think we liked hanging out too much. We didn't want to <laughs> we didn't want to break lines of fellowship by finding something that we disagreed over, even though we knew we did. We we kind of kept that to ourselves, which is yet another inconsistency um of our past. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean this is this is something that it's so interesting that this was such a point of contention between churches of Christ that on the one hand, the folks like us in the mainstream would say, oh, this was cultural. It's no big deal. And we would even say, if you want to do it, do it. We, we, in fact, I've been to congregations where one of the last congregations I attended, um, I don't know, a couple of years ago, prior to where uh, being a day spring where we're at now, they had someone um, at a, another congregation, like I said, a couple of years ago, and they had someone who wore head coverings as a lady and her, I think, daughter or daughter-in-law, and they, they believed they needed to do that. They did, but they didn't bind that on others. But the group you were a part of, this was something that was non-negotiable, right? Well, it it kind of is and kind of isn't. What's, what's really interesting is, is that if you go to any one cup church of Christ, especially in the South, not so much out West in California, but if you go to any church within the South or the Midwest, you're mm-hmm. going to see this practice and you're going to see the ripple effects of this doctrine being taught because you're going to see the vast majority of women in some areas and in some regions don't cut their hair. Yeah. What's really interesting is though, in other places, you'll see the majority of women within a congregation do cut their hair and the women that don't are in the minority. But as a topic of contention amongst preachers, the majority of the well-known preachers within the One Cup Brotherhood hold this idea. Not all of them will preach on it, but some will. Um, One of the things that occurs annually every year within the One Cup group is what's referred to as a preacher study. And it alternates between Oklahoma City and Grapevine, Texas every other year. There, there are two different congregations that trade off on hosting duties. And this always this study always happens the week of Christmas. And what happens is, is you have these preachers who are assigned various topics. And it may be about some of the points of Calvinism. It may be postmodernism. It may be, you know, some of the literary analysis of Job. You know, it's going to be different topics. And it's usually an all-day thing. There are two speakers in the morning, two speakers in the afternoon, one speaker in the evening. They break for a couple hours for lunch. They break a couple hours for dinner in the evening. It's a big get-together. A lot of people come in to hear a lot of teaching. 
Um, these guys will get up and give a presentation between 45 and 50 minutes. And then there's usually 30 to 40 minutes after that in which questions are taken from the audience where people can ask questions about what was presented. It, it's, it's really cool. And I've, I've really enjoyed those preacher studies I've attended. And I say all that to say this, there was one year in which the covering first Corinthians 11, two through 16 was presented as a topic. In response to that presentation, one preacher who does not or who did not ascribe to this idea, this is back in the early 2000s, um, he sent out a, a basically a booklet or a pamphlet to all of the churches in the directory. It was either done through snail mail or email. I don't remember which. Basically saying the uncut hair doctrine is not accurate. It's not true. Paul's only talking about long hair. Well, another well-known preacher within the One Cup group wrote a, and sent out a reply to his booklet, and this other preacher who initially sent it out that said the uncut hair doctrine is not true doctrine. This is a false doctrine. This is not what the Bible teaches. He was marked in disfellowship from the One Cup group for that position for sending it out. So while congregations will still work together, and it's not a point of division from congregation to congregation— and I can tell you firsthand because I used to do this. If you have a congregation in which the women don't cut their hair, most people view that congregation as, quote, a stronger congregation. If you have a congregation in which the majority of the Christian sisters in that congregation do cut their hair, people mm -hmm. judge that congregation, the elders, deacons, if they have elders or deacons or the leadership of that congregation, that congregation is judged as a weaker or more liberal congregation. So there's definitely a ripple effect from this doctrine within the one cup group of the churches of Christ. If you don't hold to the holiness codes or modesty codes, you're a weaker Christian. Your congregation is not a sound, probably not a sound congregation, but lines of fellowship generally aren't drawn over it on a congregational basis. But if there's yeah. a preacher who just comes out and out and grinds that ax, they will be marked in disfellowship for it. I've seen kind of like kind of like any other division in the churches of Christ, and not just the churches of Christ. We we always allude to the churches of Christ because that's that's where we grew up, and that's what we're still affiliated with. Um, I guess you could say pretty pretty loosely in some senses, but <laughs> um, but we are both members of the church. Attend congregations of the churches of Christ, but it, it, that that's kind of how it goes with any issue. Is that there's a disagreement. Some people don't think it's a big issue. Other people do. But then you get someone who's a hothead or someone who's really authoritative in there and they start pushing it and they get enough people on their side and then it begins to really be a problem. And, and that's usually how a lot of divisions take place, unfortunately. Well, and it is. And it's sad that that's the case. But whenever whenever I read through and I, I, I found a copy of the booklet that was sent out and the reply and I emailed it to you. So if you're in the mood for reading 92 pages of stuff of people arguing with each other, just pull that up and read it. You'll, I think you'll be interested in it and it'll, you'll, you'll get a kick out of it. But in any like case though, whenever, oh yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> if you're having trouble sleeping, just pick that up. <laughs> or so just listen think, to this That's what people think of our podcast. Absolutely. I can't sleep till I start listening to your podcast. It's better than Ambien. But, <laughs> but we're replacing we're replacing uh um CPAP machines. I mean, that's 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 what we're here to do. Get the best sleep of your life. But whenever you look at this idea of the uncut hair doctrine, I'm sure that there are people saying, Well, from what you read there, I don't see anything in that passage that would indicate uncut hair. I don't see anything that would point to or allude to a woman shouldn't ever cut her hair, period. 
it's easy to see long hair under consideration. If you take just a simple, straightforward reading of the passage and you just take it for what it is, if you're just going to pick it up and read it and then do it, which neither you or I believe that's the best way to approach scripture anymore. There's, there's more work that goes into to studying the scriptures and being able to rightly divide the word than just picking it up and reading it. But it's easy to see long hair being under consideration. It's easy to see that being the case. I mean, any time in that particular passage that hair is referred to, a woman's hair specifically, it's it's referred to as long hair. And Paul even goes so far to use what I believe to be hyperbole whenever he speaks of her being shaved or shorn, which is an opposite. It's hyper it's a hyperbolic opposite to long hair. So how do you get uncut hair as the covering in this passage? So you have to do some gymnastics to, to arrive at that conclusion. You got to do a little bit of digging into the Greek. But the way that I would have explained this before is that this word that's translated as long is komeo or coma in Greek. And whenever this is a word that's used, what this word means in that passage must be established by context. And if you have a passage that's hard to understand, you can use another passage to reflect on that passage to try to make that which is opaque more clear. So this word that's translated long is used in the Septuagint in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 6 and verse 5, you see the Nazarite vow being um, um, established within the law of Moses. Now, we understand what the Nazarite vow is. The most famous Nazarite or the most famous person who took the Nazarite vow, maybe with the exception of, of John the Baptist, would be Samson. And the idea of the Nazarite vow is that while a person takes the vow of a Nazarite, no razor can come upon their head. They can't cut their hair. Their hair is to be allowed to grow. And in number six and verse five, it says, all the days of the vow of his separation no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the hair, the locks of the hair of his head grow. Now this word or this phrase rather, no razor shall come upon his head and shall let the locks of the hair grow come from Komea or Komeo as that Greek root. So the idea is, is if we take this idea where this word is used in the Nazarite vow in Numbers, and we see that word being used in view of long hair in 1 Corinthians 11, well, then what that means is, is that the woman's long hair isn't, doesn't pertain to a particular length. It means that she is letting her hair grow. Now, how does she let her hair grow? She doesn't cut it. If you let your lawn grow, you don't get your lawnmower out and go out there and cut it. If you're letting your lawn grow, you don't even go out there with scissors and just snip the very you know top eighth of an inch off of it. You let it grow. To let the hair grow means let no razor come upon her head. And the way that I would have explained it before, and the way so many um, good, solid men, you know, people that I still respect, though I disagree with them, the way that they would explain it is, is that this is what God means whenever he tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen 15, that a woman is to have long hair. The Christian woman is instructed by the Lord not to touch her hair with a razor. She's not to cut it. To have long hair, and this long uncut hair is to serve as a natural covering when she worships. Having long uncut hair prevents her from dishonoring her head of authority, her spiritual head on earth, the man, and from dishonoring herself, according to verses 5 and 6. 
And like we had talked about before, according to verse 16, if anyone becomes contentious over this matter, instead of arguing with them, we're told to simply inform them that there's no other way of doing things. There's no other custom among God's people that men or than men with short hair and that women have long hair and that long hair is uncut. And I would have said years ago, this is not a man-made custom. This has nothing to do with first century customs. This is a divine custom. And because it's a divine custom that Christian men today must wear their hair short and Christian women today must wear their hair long. And that means uncut. So if we summarize the position, the uncut hair argument argues that a Christian woman may never cut her hair because these ordinances are predicated upon created order and, and divine hierarchy, and that uncut hair or long hair is a symbol of that authority, and it's necessary because of the angels. Now, what does that mean? We're going to talk about that briefly. I'm going to get into what I believe it means. There are plenty of scholars that agree with me on this, and there are some that disagree with me on this. And practically everyone within the churches of Christ disagrees with me on this, but that's okay. I don't care. <laughs> so the idea is, is that these ordinances, they follow nature, short hair on men and long uncut hair on women. So that is in essence, in a nutshell, the very brief rendering of this argument. What do you, what comments do you have at this point? Yeah. So do you want me to kind of go ahead and jump in with uh, the quote unquote head argument? Well, I, yeah, we can we can dive in there. I just didn't know if you had any other questions or anything you wanted to add at this point. No, no, no. I I think it's good, and I know that obviously you no longer believe that anymore. But I think you've done a good job setting it up and explaining why you used to believe it. And so, do you want me to start now? Because I know we had discussed looking at First Corinthians eleven. You want me to just jump right into that? Oh yeah, we can do it. I mean, there's, and, and that's where we're going. I mean, the textual inconsistencies that, that exist or the contextual inconsistencies are a plenty. And you guys now, those of you in our audience that are listening to this, you've heard the argument presented and now Kevin and I are going to go through and we're going to discuss why I no longer believe that this is the case and what I believe that covering was and what its application is now. So go ahead, brother. Yeah. So we'll start then with the idea of head headship in 1 Corinthians 11. This was a big deal to me when I was a complementarian, and it still is to many complementarians. When we had Wes on our podcast, he alluded to this verse, and, and many complementarians do. And I want to explain why I don't think 1 Corinthians 11.3 and the whole chapter is talking about headship in a way that is authoritative or a leader over someone. I don't believe this is speaking of any type of, of subordinate, of uh, being in, um, in subjection to someone else. And so I'll start with this. I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, and then I'll, I'm just going to quickly make the arguments because I have an article. Lee, I'll send you this in an email so that you can paste that too. I didn't actually write it, but it's a fantastic article that that basically gives all the sources for what I'm about to be saying, because I'm going to do this very quickly. Awesome. Um, but when you look at verse three, Paul says, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So the idea here is this, this, this order of headship that you have God, the father, then, then under God, the father, you have Jesus Christ and under Jesus Christ, you have you have the male species, and then under the male species, you have the, the female. And that's the created order. And that's the way that authority 
is supposed to be derived from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, the Father, uh, Jesus Christ, males, and then females. And I don't know what females are over. I guess they're children, and that's about it, if, uh, <laughs> if, you, ta- if you take a true complementary <laughs> position. Okay, so why then do I not think that head here is the same thing as the authority or leader or some some sort of word like that. Well, the word for head, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this because I, I don't speak Greek, but it's um, I believe it's ke- um, kepale or ke- uh, kapale. Kepa- yeah, kapale. That there you go. Kapale. I was given my Alabama accent. Kapale here. It's it's K E P H A L A Y. Kapala here the, for the the Greek word that is translated as head, actually predominantly uh, doesn't mean leader at all. In fact, I'm going to argue the case that it probably almost never meant leader in early ancient writings, including the first century when Paul would have been writing, and that's a pretty bold claim. And let me explain why I made it. So the Hebrew word for head. Kapale, Kapale, is that right, Lee? Kafale. Kafale, Kafale. Yeah, that's it. When the Hebrew word uh, for head is is used, it's the Hebrew word is different. It's it's rosh, which meant a literal head. And the translators translated rosh into kafale. And we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the Old Testament has a Greek translation. And so in Hebrew, as in English, head can also mean a leader or ruler. So in the instances where this, this Hebrew word in the Old Testament, rosh, meant a leader, in the majority of cases, the translators did not use the word kafale in their translation of the Septuagint. Instead, they typically used another Greek word, which is spelled A-R-C-H-O-N, which does mean leader or ruler. So that's where we typically see this word. So out of the 180 instances where Rosh has the sense of leader in the Hebrew Bible, only eight were translated as kafale into the Septuagint. Dude, that's crazy. So in other words, the whoever the, the translators or the, those who translated the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, into the Greek Old Testament, they didn't believe that this word should be understood as, a, as authoritative. Kafale was not the word that they understood as, as an authoritative leader-type word. Otherwise, they wouldn't have only translated it, um, what, 3% of the time that way, 4% of the time that way? In other words, over yeah. what, close to 95%, that's not how they translate it. So here's where things really get interesting. Well, what does the Hebrew word rosh mean? What, what, what can that word mean? Well, it can actually mean the beginning. And Kenneth Bailey, he writes, the Jewish New Year is celebrated as the head, the rosh of the year. But the first day of the year is not in authority over, rather it flows from the first day. Now, here's, here's where it's really interesting if you want a good parallel. Psalm 111, verse 10. And let me just go ahead and pull this up real quick. Psalm 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to guess what that word beginning is? I would think in the Hebrew it's probably rosh. It's rosh, which was, of course, translated uh, into what? Kefale. 
Kefale, yes. So when someone says that, oh, this word has some sort of authority, no, the fear, the fear, the respect of the Lord is not over the wisdom of God by any means. If anything, the whole book of Psalms and Proverbs is showing how wisdom is the ideal. Um, but the idea is that's where it flows from. It's the beginning. Okay, it's the source, if you will. Now, whenever you say that, and you know, we we talked about this briefly whenever we discussed why we changed on women's roles, and we talked about this idea of head being source, mm -hmm. and we didn't get into all this in that episode. And no, we didn't. So this is some extra fodder. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Were you were you going to make a point from? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, man. Well, whenever whenever we consider this idea of source, I had heard that argument made before whenever I held to the uncut hair doctrine and I dismiss it. I said, well, then why would the translators put head here and why would they speak of authority? Why would they speak yeah. of a symbol of authority, which we're going to talk about in a moment? But I never considered the point that you made in the last episode. And I'm going to ask you to make that point again as this relates to source to what is it? Verse 12 in this passage, that to me, it makes so much more sense whenever you think about this in terms of source rather than authority. Yeah. Well, and, and let me, let me finish this up really quickly because I want to, I want to kind of just load all the, the evidence here in this one little package. And then, like I said, I'll, I'll send that link. And if people want to know, okay, where are you getting all these sources from? Here's, here's where I'm getting these sources from. These are documented sources. This is evidence. This isn't me just throwing this out there uh, from thin air. So an another reason to believe Kefale does not mean headship in the sense of how we understand it. Okay. In the sense of authoritative being author of having authority over is because the lexicons of secular ancient Greek do not give this definition of leader or authority over as a definition of kafale. Never. Okay. So it, it, it never meant leader. In fact, in ancient Greek, uh, the LSJ, which is the most exhaustive lexicon of ancient Greek, it never includes any definition of kafale as leader or authority, not one time. And then also several early church fathers going a little bit later into history, Early church fathers did not interpret head as meaning leader. Not not all, some did, but not some of them didn't believe it should be interpreted head. They believed it should mean beginning or source. Um, and once again, I'll put all of these resources here, this article that has all these resources. Another example is secular Greek authors did not use kafale when writing about the relationship between men and women. And you would figure as much if the uh, the lexicons during that time obviously didn't include it because they go based upon how people are using the words. Kafale wasn't used in that sense. And when, when we look to how uh, these ancient or these secular Greek authors were using a rela this relationship between men and women. Uh, Paul, on the other hand, by the way, never uses any of the words Plutarch or other Greek writers used when he writes about men and women. In fact, Paul and every other New Testament author never uses any of the many Greek words that commonly meant leader or authority over when writing about husbands. So the point I'm making here is that there were plenty of words out there if Paul wanted to use a common word where the common people, which when we talk about Cohen Greek, it means common Greek, they would have understood that's what it means. Uh, but that's not what Paul did. Paul didn't use that word. He used uh, kafale. And then also going back to what I think this word means is I believe it means source. 
Now, I do want to be honest with the text here because the Greek word for head, as we just have been talking about, never, well, I'll put rarely, if ever, meant leader or an, or an authority in works originally written in Greek before or during the first century A.D., I submit you really don't have any evidence of that. The only evidence people point to is they say, well, Paul here meant it in a different way. And you can make that argument, but I think that's a lot of special pleading there because you never see it being used that way anywhere else. It's pretty supposition. Well, however, I will say this, though. The idea of, of kafale, this word that's translated head, meaning source, was also not that common in ancient Greek either, though. <laughs> but it was more common than the meaning of authority or leader. So the point here is neither one of these definitions are really used that often. It's kind of a weird text right here. The, the, the fact that Paul would use kafale here, because the fact that this would mean authority over doesn't really make sense linguistically, so if we compare it to meaning source, well, that really isn't a home run either. So it's not this clear case in point where it's like, oh, clearly Paul's talking about source here because he uses kafale. Well, that's not necessarily the case either. But if we are going just linguistically, kafale would win based upon the evidence that we have, or not kafale, but um, the, the meaning of source would win out with what kafale means based upon the evidence that we have. But I think there is an internal argument to show that this does not mean authority over. Are you ready for this? I'm ready, baby. <laughs> and this is okay. why I wanted to hand this part off to you because you under even though you're not a Greek scholar, like I'm not a Greek scholar, you have a whole lot better understanding of this part of well, this argument than what I do, and you can express it way better than I can. You know, I never I always write. So the thing is, I never speak. Greek words, and I'm horrible at pronunciation anyway. And uh, so, or I think it's in, yeah, I, I, when it comes to pronouncing things, I'm just not very good at it, especially Greek. So, um, but yeah, so as far as is the terms, that's why a lot of times I just spell them out. But here's what's very interesting. So, bottom line, summarize everything I just said. To take the meaning of the word head here, kafale, and translate that into authority is without linguistic evidence. To take the word head, kafale, and translate it as source is without much linguistic evidence, but it has more than authority, <laughs> okay? So, so that's kind of the argument there. But here's where I think your bigger and better argument comes from is internally within the text. Now, notice this. We miss this a lot. The head of every man is Christ. No problem with that. The head of man, uh, the head of woman is man. If you're a, a man... And especially complementarian, you definitely say you don't have any problem with that. <laughs> Amen. But we don't think much about this one. And the head of Christ is God. Now, I want you to think about the word authority for a minute. And let's let's just read that. And the authority of Christ, who has authority over Jesus Christ, is God. Now, people say, well, yeah, Kevin, that makes sense, right? Like God the Father, God the Son, you know, like Jesus is a little bit under the Father when it comes to authority. Here's the problem with this. When you look at the whole scheme of redemption, when you see that Jesus came and he died, it's correct in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus, when he came in the flesh, 
He humbled himself. And even verse five says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But now God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus Christ Every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth, on, on heaven and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So here's what's happening here. To argue that somehow when Paul was writing this after Jesus had been resurrected and say that the Father has more authority over Jesus Christ is a contradiction. It's a contradictory statement because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, it wasn't as if, because I believe Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus is deity. But I believe Philippians 2 teaches while he came down, while he was on earth, there was a sense in which he, while he was still deity, he submitted himself to the Father. But after he was resurrected, now he had overcome death. And what does the text say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And the whole point Jesus is making while he is on earth, by the way, he makes this point so powerfully that uh, this is one of the reasons why the Jews wanted to kill Jesus is because verse 18 of John 5 says that Jesus is making himself equal with God. And Matthew 28, 18 and through 20 makes this clear. All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Now, what sense would it make when the whole message that Paul is teaching is Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus has all authority, and especially to the Jews, because the Jews still thought, no, 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 Jesus was inferior to the God. A lot of the Jews still had this misunderstanding. And Paul's whole point is, no, Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is God. Jesus has all authority. And then turn around and completely contradict that by saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. The Father, who the Jews would have understood as Jehovah, the Old Testament, yeah, he's a lot more powerful than Jesus Christ, still has all the authority. That would be a reason to say, well, then why are we not, Why are, we need to go back to the old law then. We need to follow Jehovah God because he has more authority than Jesus Christ. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense contextually at all. The point that Paul's making in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that Jesus, he's trying to explain to especially a Jewish audience. Now, this is Corinth, as you would predominantly have Gentiles, but also for them to understand this, that Jesus is not separate and apart, as we like to say, from God. He is equal. He came from him. So where did Jesus, where did the Messiah come from? The source, where did he come from? Well, he was, he was born of a woman, that's true. But, but from where? But from who? The Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit. So what we see here is that when it comes to God, just the idea of God, of Yahweh, Jesus is not a false prophet. Jesus didn't come from just any old person or place. The source of Jesus is who? Is God. It has nothing to do with the authority here because if it did, Jesus didn't have all authority. Jehovah would still be over Jesus Christ in some sense. 
But that's not what Jesus himself even claimed. Or at the very least, you have, like you said, a contradiction with the idea of Christ being given all authority at the Great Commission in Matthew. That's right. Absolutely. And with Paul Paul wrote this after the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. And brother, that's an angle that I had never considered. We didn't talk about this before the podcast. And brother, you just blew my mind. Yeah. Well, and if and if Paul would have said this like prior to Jesus, like if Peter would have said this. Okay, maybe you could you could try to make that argument, but the point is is that this is after after Jesus, and that's that's the point uh, Philippians is making. There was a period of time Jesus, he, you know, God emptied Himself. He came in flesh. Um, you know, he he was even Hebrews one. I mean, lower than little, lower, lower than, the than the angels, all these yeah. things. But then now He has been resurrected, and now that's that is the crowning victory to show this is God. You know, and I, and I do believe in the Godhead, so don't get me wrong. But when it comes to authority and the idea of, of having authority over, I don't think in any sense, you can't sit here and claim Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and say, but um, the Father still has more authority than Jesus Christ. Maybe he did prior to the resurrection, and I think quite Possibly based upon Philippians 2, he certainly did. But the point Philippians 2 is making is that's not the case anymore. Jesus has now made him as, as you know, he he is completely authoritative in, in the sense of how we understand authority. And that's why we are to listen to Jesus. And that would have been such a counterintuitive point, especially to people who would have read this and been like, well, wait a minute. Paul just said that Jehovah God is more powerful because they had conf- they were very confused a lot of times. They thought, well, are we to follow Jesus? Is Jesus a new God? Is he a different God? Is he different than all? Like, what's going on here? And Paul's point is, no, he, this is, Jesus flowed out of the Father. Jesus literally flowed out of the Father. That's what this word means. And that makes a lot more sense than saying that, oh, the Father still has more authority than Jesus. If that was the case, you couldn't have the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus said, listen to, my, listen to Jesus Christ. All authority yeah. has been given to him. Well, and the thing is, is, and I want to make sure that we make this abundantly clear, you are not saying, you are not saying, and I think I can put these words in your mouth because I, I think I know you well enough to know that this is not what you believe. You are not saying that Jesus was a created being. No, because, no, because absolutely there, not. Because no. there are going to be people that will hear this. Oh, well, did you hear what Kevin said? He believes Jesus was a created being. What a heretic. <laughs> no, you don't believe that at all. Jesus was the only begotten of the Father. He was begotten of the Father. He was begotten of the Father through the Holy Spirit. His birth, his fatherhood, or or his paternal um, unit, you might say, was divine, and he was begotten through Mary. The source of Jesus in that sense, in the terms of his incarnation, is through God and through the Father. That's yeah, what you're and, saying, and that's the point that Philippian or that Paul's making in Philippians. Yeah, yeah, and, and absolutely. And this just brings me right back to to the quote from Kenneth Bailey about the Jewish New Year. It's it's celebrated that Rosh, the it, it's the quote unquote what we would say head of the year, but how they understand it is it flows. It's the source. It flows from one to the other, and even uh, Psalm one one eleven verse ten, the fear of the Lord is. The beginning of wisdom. It didn't mean that like uh, fear didn't exist. You know, it wasn't like you know it's it's oh uh, somehow um, fear uh, created wisdom or anything of that nature or, or vice versa. 
This is something that flows from one another. And that was the point, because we, we so often miss this. The point that Paul and all these other apostles were trying to make is that what Jesus was doing, he was, th- this is all part of the plan that Jesus, God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Um, you know, the Messiah, as far as the anointed one, hadn't already existed. Uh, God had, as far as how we understand the Godhead, sure, Jesus was before all things, Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1, he was there in the beginning, no doubt, I believe all of that. But the point is, as far as the Messiah, when he was revealed to man, the point is, the well, incarnation. Where was, yeah, where's his source? Is his source from Satan? Is his source from humanity? No, his source, the source he came from is from God. That's why we should trust him because he is the anointed one. He, he, he was sent from God. That's the source. And so that, that's when we come to this idea of getting back to the context. I think we can talk about kafale and all this stuff all day long. And I do think linguistically you have a better argument to say, well, yeah, it would, it would be source makes more sense linguistically. But I think contextually, understanding this as source makes more sense as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I agree a hundred percent. And when, man, you just put that so beautifully, like it's, it's, it's hard to follow that such an impassioned plea for the uh, (laughs) source argument, but in, in terms of source and within terms of the context and what Paul goes on to say later, especially in, in verse eight and nine, he says in verse eight, indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. In here, you have Paul speaking in terms of source. You have Paul speaking yeah. in terms well, well, of origin. Man, man, actually, the source of, of man is woman, according to Paul. Yes. And <laughs> so, so once again, this is this is a source. This is a source um, conversation. You know, pa- Paul here, it's like, OK, if, if you're a male, where did you come from? What's your source? My mama. Woman. <laughs> you're, yeah. You, I mean, your dad definitely helped out a little bit. You know, he, he dedicated a little bit or donated a little bit there. But by the way, keep in mind, during this time, they had ancient um, ancient reproductive biological understandings where they thought that woman, you know, was the soul was basically like the sole carrier. So while the man was the one who had the seed and planted it in the woman, if if fruit came from the field, then what you had is is man came from the field of what the field of woman, and yeah. so this is so so it's this. And we don't talk about that. We always talk about the the woman comes from man, the woman's come from man. That doesn't make sense because guess what? Man comes from woman, according to Paul as well. And so this is the this is what I call the source argument. And I think linguistically you can make that argument. I don't think it's as strong linguistically as some arguments. It's certainly stronger than saying it means authority over. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it, like I said, it's not really a home run argument. It's, this isn't one of those clear words that just boom, it's easy to understand. Um, but you do have linguistic reason to believe source. But I think more importantly, contextually, when you understand and read this as source uh, and the source of Christ is God, that makes a lot more sense than the authority over Christ is God, especially considering Jesus said all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Well, exactly. And, and that right there is why I don't believe that Paul had the created order or a hierarchy of authority in mind whenever he penned this. Because that in and of itself flies in the face of the authority being bequeathed to Jesus post-resurrection. 
And it also flies in the face or maybe doesn't fly in the face, but it's more unwieldy to take verses seven and eight and verses 11 and 12 into consideration within this same passage. If you look at this term of head as an authoritative head, rather than the source from which each thing emanates. So whenever you look at this and and even in terms of authority, a lot of people point to, Oh, which verse is it? And I just lost it on my screen. Let me find it in verse 10 where the Apostle Paul says, for this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, that's kind of the next thing that we're going to touch on. And this idea, because of the angels, is one of those things that's considered a difficult passage. I believe that there is good context that establishes, I think that there's a way to establish what that context is. And I think I have a good idea of what that is. And like I said, there are some scholars that agree with me on this. There are some that disagree with this idea. But here we go. The first thing, though, that's worth noting is that the word for symbol of authority, this idea that a woman should have a symbol of authority, because that's what the uncut hair is. It's a symbol of that authority, which we've already established isn't what Paul had in mind whenever he introduces this topic by talking about the head of man, woman, Christ, God, etc. According to Australian theologian Marg Moscow, she had this to say about this idea of the symbol of authority. Symbol, and whenever you look at an interlinear translation, or you look at the, if you go back to the Greek and you look at the original Greek, this word for symbol or sign of authority, that word is not in the Greek. It's not there. And um, Moscow has this to say about it. One factor to consider when interpreting 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 is that there is no Greek word that means sign or symbol in 1 Corinthians 11 and 10. There is also no word that means veil. Several English translations, however, add these words. For example, the English Standard Version has, this is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The Revised Standard Version says, that is why a woman ought to have a veil on her head because of the angels. The King James translates verse 10 more accurately as, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. The Greek word exousia, which is translated as authority in the English Standard Version and power in the King James Version, can also mean right or freedom. 1 Corinthians 11 and 10 may mean that a woman has the right or the freedom over her own head. That is, she has the right to decide how to present her head while keeping in mind Paul's concerns about reputation and these enigmatic angels. So what Moscow has to say about this, is that this idea of a symbol of authority, this word for symbol or sign, it's not there in the Greek, it's not there in the original text, and that there's not a word for veil even in this passage. There is a word for covering, and the word komeo can mean veil. We may get into that later. We'll just have to see what the clock's looking like as as we progress. But the chief issue here is number one, this idea that the hair is a sign of authority. First, we've already established that this idea about an authoritarian hierarchy is not present in the text. It's not something that's there. It can be read into it, but it's not the best reading of the text. So if we eliminate that from our purview and our approach to 1 Corinthians 11, and there's good reason to eliminate that idea from our thought processes, because as you pointed out and spent a a good deal of time illustrating very, very well, this isn't speaking in terms of authority. So if this is a sign of authority, well, then what authority are we referring to? And if sign and symbol isn't there in the original text, 
well, then what are we left with? The King James says, for this cause, a woman ought to have power on her head because of the angels. So I'm inclined to agree with what Marg says about this, that this idea could mean that a woman has the right or the freedom to determine her own agency and how she would present herself in the worship. Paul's saying you have that right, but you need to keep the angels in mind. And that phrase, because of the angels, has given a lot of people a lot of trouble. What does that mean? And there are theories that abound out there. And there are several scholars that reject what I'm about to say. And there are several other scholars that believe that this is what it's that this is what it means. And the idea because of the angels relates to Genesis 6. So in Genesis 6, you have the sons of God going into the daughters of man. And the, you know, the Bible says that the imagination of man was only evil continually. God sends his flood. He destroys the earth. And then earth is rebuilt. You know, Noah's family, they go into the ark. They come out. They're fruitful. They multiply. And then you have the Babel incident in Genesis 11. Well, you have three different events that transpire in the Genesis narrative in which mankind deviates from God's plan and, and brings about the wrath of God, for lack of a better term. The first instance of that happening is the fall, when Adam and Eve eat of the tree and they are cast out of the Garden of Eden. The second event that takes place is this event here in Genesis 6. So whenever we talk about the sons of God and the daughters of men, that could be a whole other episode in and of itself. The diff there are different thoughts on what that means. And the thought that I always grew up hearing is that the sons of God went into the daughters of men. This has to do with the Israelites, God's people, or the people that would become God's covenant people going into all of these other tribes. You know, you have Cain being cast out of the land, going to the land of Nod, to the city. He has his descendants, and then you have the descendants of Seth, that these sons of God are the descendants of Seth, and these daughters of men are the descendants of Cain. If you dive deep into the context of Genesis 6, I don't believe that's the case. The other perspective is, is that the sons of God are divine beings that are lying with the daughters of men, that these are angelic or divine beings that are procreating with, with humankind. I believe that that's what the Genesis writer has in mind. Dr. Michael Heiser believes that this is the case. And in, in this sense, this is what he has to say about it. He says, the material about the man is the head of the woman. And you got to cover their head and have to, and this is from an interview that he gave and had to have the symbol of authority on you and all this other stuff because of the angels. What it really means is that women needed to be very careful to be modest, to show modesty with respect to their hair, because in the back of Paul's mind, he's concerned that what happened in Genesis six might happen again. And if you go back to Genesis 6 and you look at what happens, this event of the sons of God lying with the daughters of men and bringing about the Nephilim, this is what invoked God's wrath and brought about God's judgment through the flood. For Paul, Dr. Heiser says, that is a possibility. We do not want another problem like this because the Second Temple Jewish thinking we might do in the future at some point want to say more and I'm not sure what this is. Like I said, this is something that I listened to and I typed it out for our notes here. Anyway, he says, why evil multiplied and proliferated throughout the earth is that the sin of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sin of the angels, the angels that sinned is how Peter refers to it and other texts refer to it. The sons of God, the watchers, that was a huge deal in Second Temple Judaism. The point is, is that in their mind and in their purview, women may 
invoke the lust of these divine beings and bring about the wrath of God again should these angels be tempted to procreate with them one more time. And there's there's more that can be said about this idea. There's more that can be said about this subject, but we'll save that for another time. But when you look at the context of Genesis 6, I do believe that the supernatural view is the best explanation of, of what took place, that that's what they believed happened. And that really dovetails into the third point, and that's Paul's argument from nature. So why is it that angels would look down and see women's hair and lust after them? Why would that be the case? Well, the long uncut hair argument... Because uh, they have a hair fetish. They have a hair fetish. That could be the case. There are some weird folks out there, and hey, maybe these divine beings are weird. Who knows? But... (laughs) Hair, and even now in some Orthodox Jewish communities, hair is still viewed as an erotic feature of women. It's something that can induce lust in the hearts of men. There are some sects of Islam that view it this way. There are some um, Orthodox Jewish communities that view it this way. And this idea is, it's, it's a very, very old idea. And the long uncut hair argument and this this idea of because of the angels is a hard passage. I believe contextually it does refer to the sin of Genesis 6. Um, but also Paul's argument from nature. Does not even nature itself teach you, teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but a woman's hair is her glory. Well, what does that mean? The long uncut hair argument. The uncut hair argument posits that Paul's argument from nature demonstrates that men should have short hair and women should have long hair. They shouldn't cut their hair. And some, there are some that have contended that the nature here, the word nature could also mean culture. But if you do a word study on that word for nature, which is uh, phusis in the Greek, it reveals that it doesn't necessarily mean culture. And in nature, in terms, it, what it means is the natural order of things. How do things work in nature? It's exactly how you would think about nature and how I would think about nature. That's the, the idea that it connotes. But the question is, is, does not nature itself teach you it's a shame for a man to have long hair? Well, how does that work? If nature's allowed to run its course, a man's hair is going to grow long, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, if you go without a haircut, your hair is going to get long. If I go without a haircut, I'm just still going to be bald. Like, I don't need haircuts anymore. Like, well, and, like, and, even, and even if you believe that man shouldn't have long hair, culture doesn't give you any kind or uh, excuse me, nature doesn't give you any kind of gauge for that. You would still have to use some sort of culture, uh, cultural measuring stick. I, I remember talking to individuals who believe man shouldn't have long hair. And even my granddad, he used to believe that, and I'm sure he still does. He thinks that if a man's hair touches his ears, that that's too long. And he gets that view based upon culture. And so if someone were to say, well, I think nature itself teaches that men are not supposed to have long hair, the next question that automatically follows is, well, how long is too long? Yeah. And, and that's the issue that you run into. And so to split, well, I, I don't want to say to split hairs. I guess that's a kind of a bad point. <laughs> yeah. But if you're going to make this argument, well, okay, how long is too long? And the idea is, is that a man's hair, it means, you know, this word comeo, it means, you know, long tresses, something that hangs down. If a man's hair is long enough to hang down from his head, well, then that's too long. But doesn't hair naturally hang down? I mean, mine never did. Whenever I had hair, it was really thick. It was wavy and it grew up. If I tried to grow my hair long, I couldn't do it. It turned into an afro. But my brother's hair would hang down. And if you look at your hair now, 
your hair hangs down from its head. I mean, how far does it have to hang before it's too long? So you start getting in this idea, but even further than that, though, if we're going to argue from nature that nature teaches us that it's shameful for a man to have long hair, how does nature do that? If a man's hair, if left up to nature will grow long, it doesn't make sense. So whenever Paul's arguing from nature, the question is, is what is he arguing from? What does that mean? This is something that has stymied scholars for a long time. And I believe that there is an answer, a really solid answer that takes the context into consideration. And man, whenever I read this, my initial thought was, this is the most cuckoo bananas thing I've ever read in my life. <laughs> but after really thinking about it and studying it and, and diving into it, I believe there's a lot of truth to it. So, well, and I was actually, I was just going to make a couple more points too. No, it, go ahead. It really just goes to what you're talking about with the long hair, but you're exactly right that you have a lot of reasons to believe that if you, if you take that statement um, that nature teaches that it is wrong to have long hair, then you, you, you're forced to say, okay, what do you do then with all the Bible passages that, that talk about long hair? And even in the old Testament, priests had to have some hair, because if you were bald, according to Leviticus 21, verse 5, sorry, Lee, you couldn't serve as a priest. You had to have yeah, at least be some priest. hair. And, uh, and and you don't have enough, sorry. Comments on Absalom's physical appearance uh, said that he had long hair. We know he had very long hair um, because it got stuck. And it seemed to be not only an acceptance, but appreciation because it talked about how he was, had a, a beautiful physical trait. And it talked about his long hair in a positive and of course, the Nazarite, the Nazarite vow, um, you, you, if you were talking about to allow their locks on their hair to grow long. And Samuel, he had long hair because it, it seems that he had this vow. Hannah made the Nazarite vow for Samuel at his birth, it appears in 1 Samuel 1.11. And John the Baptist was probably a Nazarite. And then Paul at one point seemed to have taken this Nazarite vow. We see in Acts 18.18 18 and Acts 21.22 through 24. And the existence of the Nazareth vow obviously seems to imply that long hair was probably not the norm because if it was part of this consecrated vow and everybody was doing it, it probably wouldn't be that big of a deal. So probably a lot of people didn't have long hair at that time. But taking the Nazareth vow was something that was esteemed among the Jews. So contrary to something that would have been shameful, you know, why would God or why would the law even have something that was considered shameful as a consecrated vow or in this in this wonderful honor esteemed among the Jews, if if it was something that was against nature. And the answer, I believe, is obviously it wouldn't. And so that was just to supplement a little bit what you had already said. But there are so many instances here that would say if you actually take that statement in isolation and say nature itself teaches that man, men who have long hair is it's shameful that cannot be properly harmonized with everything else we see in Scripture. You can't. And so the question then is, because Paul apparently does not have the Nazarite vow in view whenever he's writing these instructions, because he does say that nature does teach that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. So with that being the case, and with Paul being a Jew, and with the Nazarite vow and those who would who would take that Nazarite vow yeah, being he held couldn't in be high talking regard, about like you that. said. Yeah. So... What does he have in mind? Well, there's an article that, that I came across a couple of years ago that blew my mind. 
And it provides a lot of context to this. And I believe it has a ton of explanatory power. Now, I don't agree 100% with this author's conclusion, and we'll, we'll get into why that is in a moment. And I'm also going to take this moment to say that if there are small children that are present and you're listening to this, we're going to give you about 10 seconds to get them out of the room. And we're going to warn you that what we're going to talk about is actually sexually explicit and you may not want them to hear this if they haven't heard about the birds and the bees yet, because that involves this argument from nature. I believe that that's what Paul had in mind, and we're going to discuss that. So take a moment. We'll take a very short break, and then we'll kick it back off. And here we go. So this argument from nature, what did Paul have in mind? There's an article that was written in 2000, it was either 2007 or 2009 by a biblical scholar named Troy Martin. And in Troy Martin's article, he places the position or he gives the argument that Paul's argument from nature had ancient reproductive physiology in view whenever Paul made this argument. I believe that Troy Martin is spot on in that assertion. I do not follow fully with his conclusion, which is in the title of this article. The title of the article, which we'll, we'll put a link to the article in the show notes, is Paul's argument from nature for the veil in 1 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, a testicle instead of a head covering. The word that's translated covering, her hair is given to her for a covering, is the Greek word parabolion. And from what Dr. Martin says is that this word that's translated covering should be translated testicle instead of covering. Now he refers to multiple primary sources in the Greek in which this is, which this euphemism is utilized. He looks at a story about that was written about Hercules. Whenever Hercules was a young man and he hit puberty, he received his bags of flesh, that bags of flesh being another common Greek euphemism that refers to testicles. That word for bags of flesh is the Greek word parabolion. So he uses that. He also uses a play by Euripides, I think it was. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I don't have the article in front of me in which this language is used and parabolion is translated in terms of reproductive anatomy. Apparently, this word parabolion was a euphemistic term that was used in Greek and in various places to represent a testicle or reproduction. Now, why would that be the case? It's because the ancient view of reproductive physiology was way, way different than what ours is. If you look at writings by Aristotle, you look at writings by Hippocrates, you look at writings from um, Plato and from other ancient peoples in that day, they believe that hair, the hair that grows from your head and even the hair that grows on your body, serves a secondary sexual reproductive function. They believed that hair was hollow, and if hair is hollow, it would exert what's called capillary action, and what a capillary does, or it, it would exert a vacuum. It would basically draw things into it. If you've ever given blood and you've had your finger pricked and they're going to test it, they prick your finger, and then what do they do? They get this little bitty thin glass tube, and they touch the blood, and that glass tube sucks the blood up into it, right? Yep. That's capillary action is what that's called. So the idea is, is that man would produce seminal fluid, 
seminal fluid was the seed that he would plant into the field, quote unquote, of the woman in order for reproduction to take place. Another interesting thing to note is that the ancient Hebrews and even the Egyptians, they didn't even know what the brain was for. Whenever the Egyptians would mummify a body, they would remove the brain through the nose, through the nostrils, and they'd just throw it away. They'd discard it. They didn't know what it was for. It's noted that in ancient Greek and Hellenistic culture and in some Jewish cultures, it was believed that the brain is where semen was produced. And if you've ever dissected a human brain and seen an unpreserved human brain, it's about the same color as seminal fluid is. So it's not that far of a stretch for them to assume that's the case. The belief, if you read Hippocrates and you read Aristotle, is that whenever puberty hit and the testicles in the male would enlarge and they would drop, that that would draw taut seminal vesicles and seminal cords that connected the brain to the testes and that it would pull seminal fluid from the head in which it was produced down into the testes to which it would then be expelled into the woman. It is a man's nature to expel their semen in order to reproduce. Now, what purpose does hair serve in this in this function, in this construct? The ancients believed that the longer a woman's hair was, the more fertile she could be. Because her hair exerted a capillary action. Whenever a man would ejaculate, the woman's hair exerted capillary action that would draw the seminal fluid up into her womb and allow it to um, be planted into her womb, and then she would bear a child. This is one of the reasons why prostitutes would cut their hair very, very short, is they believed it was a method of birth control. Aristotle is noted for describing the way that women would be tested to determine whether or not they would fertile. They would go to the doctor. A doctor would take a scented suppository and place it into the vaginal orifice. And then they would return the next day. They would keep it there for 24 hours. They would return the next day and the doctor would smell their breath. If he could smell the scent that was placed in that suppository on their breath, they were determined to be fertile. The reason why the doctor, according to their view, could smell that on her breath is because her hair being long would draw it up into her body, up to the mouth, and then she would breathe out and you could smell it. This is well documented. This isn't crazy talk. This isn't pie in the sky stuff. This isn't things that's fringe in, in its day and culture. This is what the Hellenists believed. This is what the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans believed about reproductive physiology. They believed this was the case, that this is how it worked. This is why women would often depiliorate themselves, and that means remove hair, because any other hair, whether it be under the armpits or whether it be hair in the pubic region, also exert a capillary action, and it would prevent the, the seminal fluid from being drawn up into her womb. So this, I believe, I really believe this is the case. I am 100% convinced that in Paul's mind, whenever he says, does not even nature itself teach you it's a shame for a man to have long hair, that this is what he has in mind. Because in that region, man, that, in is, that, that realm, is just fantastic, man. That is so, so interesting because you see Paul oftentimes using ancient understandings. And, and just as we understand that back then they had understandings that they thought were true, 
whether it was the flat earth, whether it was the three-tiered universe, whether it was ancient reproductive biology, and, and what you're talking about right here. I mean, that fits right in line that Paul would, this would be just that accommodative nature of scripture, accommodating that ancient understanding at that time. Absolutely. And whenever we take this into consideration and we view this in these terms, now where I disagree with Dr. Martin is, and, and it's mainly because I don't have the experience in ling, in linguistics that he does. I don't have the experience in languages that he in does. In linguini. Yeah, I don't In linguini. That. I love linguini, fettuccine, <laughs> all the above. But I don't agree that this word covering should be translated as testicle. To me, that's that's a step too far. I'm not convinced that that's the case. But I am 100% convinced that whenever Paul makes his argument from nature, this is what he has in mind. Because in that day and time, men did not wear long hair. They wore their hair short. And one of the reasons they wore their hair short is because it was in keeping with their nature. It would be considered improper for a man to wear his hair long in Hellenistic culture. And who is Paul writing to? He's writing to a church in Corinth. He's writing to a church that was more than likely more Gentile than Jew. Now, it's possible there may have been more Jews than Gentiles. We don't really know what the makeup is, but we do know how they viewed reproduction. We do know what their cultural practices were, and their cultural practices were that men kept their hair short because it was in man's nature to eject his semen. And if a man had long hair, that capillary action would pull that seminal fluid back up and prevent him from ejecting it. We also know that women wore veils in that day and time. We know that Jewish women wore veils in that day and time. And it's because the hair was considered an accessory reproductive organ, or at the very least, even if the Jews didn't view it that way, which I believe they did, even if the Jews didn't view it that way, hair was considered an erotic thing. Their hair needed to be covered. This plays into Jewish conceptions of modesty, which I wanted to get into, but in the interest of time, we won't. Now, these reasons are enough for me to reject the notion that Paul had uncut hair in mind whenever he wrote 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. And I, I really believe that that's the case. These Jewish women covered their hair. They covered their hair because it would be improper for them to walk out of their house with this accessory reproductive organ on display. Now, not all Roman women viewed it that way, though, and that wasn't necessarily the cultic custom of the Gentiles in that region either. Um, and uh, at the University of Portland School of Theology, Michael Cameron had this to say about it. He said, long hair was the norm for both men and women, though they regularly cut and trimmed it. Only in certain circumstances did they shear or shave their heads. This was true even for priests who, unlike their bald counterparts in Egypt and Mesopotamia, were not allowed to shave their heads, Leviticus 21.5. Nor were they allowed to trim the side growth of their heads, Leviticus 19.27. There is no indication, however, that they were forbidden to otherwise trim their head hair. There's zero indication that I have found personally among scholars who have studied biblical and surrounding cultures that any culture in that era ever forbade women from cutting their hair. There's not anything that I've found there. If Paul had uncut hair in mind for the covering, it stands to reason that we would see that reflected in early church fathers. We would see that reflected in later patristic writings. We would see that tradition emanate through history, and we would see some anthropological evidence that that was a position that was at least, if, even if it wasn't commonly held, we would see it referenced as a fringe position in other writings. 
but we don't see that. If Paul's admonition to Corinth was to establish the woman's hair as her covering, and that covering is only intact if it remains uncut, we should expect to see that idea corroborated by outside evidence and even internal evidence. But we don't see that. There's not a shred of evidence that demonstrates that this idea or practice was ever on anyone's radar other than the Nazarite vow, which we briefly discussed. But women did practice covering their head with a veil. We know that's the case. The reason why they did so was because of reproductive physiology or their view of reproductive physiology, but also because there were cultural considerations that needed to be taken into account. In that Second Temple era that Paul lived in and wrote in and moved in, women would cover their hair to mark the transition from girlhood to womanhood. Adult women, Jewish women, were expected to cover their hair in public, even though some traditions relate that a virgin or an unmarried woman might leave her hair uncovered. Covering a woman's hair was an issue of modesty because it was considered sexually arousing, as we discussed before. Covering one's hair was also an indication that the woman belonged to one man and was no longer available to others, much like a wedding ring. Um, doctor, or I'm not really sure if he's a doctor, but Cameron, he goes on to say this, a married woman might forfeit her ketubah, her marriage contract, if she went outdoors with her hair uncovered and a married woman forced to uncover her hair in public would consider it a sexual disgrace. Whoever uncovered a woman's hair in public had to pay shame damages. Women covered their hair with woolen hairnets, with caps, with fillets, with diadems, with veils, and with the corners of their mantle or their headscarves, similar to what we see reflected in the Greco-Roman world. Upper-class women might also wear a tiara or a crown, and on festive occasions, they might crown themselves with olive wreaths. While mourning and in privacy, they might cover their hair with ashes and dung or even tear out their hair. So in this, we see the cultural reference to the veil, and we know that this is the case. Whenever we look at culture, in Robert Gundry's survey of the Old Testament, which was published in the 70s, he references and he talks about this idea, is it the veil or is it uncut hair? And in various catacombs in Judea, there are cave paintings and, and paintings on the wall that show Christian women wearing veils that date back to around the first and second century. Arrhenius taught that 1 Corinthians 11 referred to veiling. Tertullian taught that 1 Corinthians 11 referred to veiling. Clement of Alexandria taught that 1 Corinthians 11 referred to veiling. Hippolytus spoke of the practice of veiling. Chrysostom spoke and taught that 1 Corinthians 11 referred to veiling. And Jerome spoke of the practice of veiling and also spoke positively of women cutting their hair. So this idea of the uncut hair doctrine being what Paul had in mind has a lot of evidence stacked up against it. And as it relates to culture, um, Marg Moscow that we, that we talked about before, she had this to say about it. In the first century, Corinth was a Roman colony and its inhabitants were bound by Roman law. Some of these laws govern what men and women wore and how they presented themselves in public. As in other parts of the Roman Empire, Corinthian society was highly stratified and class conscious, and most of the laws concerning appearance were directly tied to a person's social status. For example, only a Roman matron, a respectable married or widowed woman, could wear a stola, a long dress worn over a basic tunic, and only a matron could wear a pala, a garment like a shawl that could be pulled over the head while stepping out of doors. Wearing a stola and wearing a pala or veil was a status symbol. 
These garments signified that a woman was married or widowed and that she was unavailable. Wearing the usual garb of a woman, a Roman matron offered women protection against sexual harassment as it was illegal for a man to harass, ask for sex, or to molest a woman when she was out in public if she was dressed as a matron. Apollo or Veil did not signify subordination as some have suggested. In fact, the most subordinate of women in Roman society did not wear veils. It was illegal for slaves, prostitutes, freedwomen, and women from the lowest classes to wear either a stola or a pala. In usual social contexts, they were forbidden by law from veiling their heads in public. There were no laws to protect poor women or slave women from sexual harassment, and there were no laws to protect upper-class women who chose not to dress as matrons. So with that idea, if we go back to 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, I read from the English Standard Version that introduced this for a reason. In that version, this passage is translated instead of the head of, you know, woman is man, the head of a wife is her husband. I believe that in this passage, Paul has that marital relationship in view. I believe Paul is speaking of a veil, and I believe these cultural practices, as well as the ancient perspectives on reproductive physiology that inform Paul's argument from nature, are the core of what it means to understand what this passage meant. Now, I know that there are people out there that disagree with me, and that's fine. But having weighed the evidence, this is the most compelling to me. Another thing that I believe ties into this idea of Paul having a veil in mind rather than uncut hair is the whole idea of praying or prophesying. A woman is to be veiled and a woman is to be veiled when she is prophesying or praying. That is a specific moment in time in which the woman is to be covered. Now, those who take the um, non-participatory view of women in worship use 1 Corinthians 14 to infirm, or rather to inform, I should say, their understanding of 1 Corinthians 11. She's only praying or prophesying at home, and because she's only praying or prophesying at home, she's not wearing a veil in public. Therefore, her covering must be hair. But you and I spent a lot of time talking about this. We won't recover all that. I don't believe that's the right way to look at this. If we see this tied to ancient perspectives on modesty and culture, we see it tied to ancient perspectives on reproductive physiology, and we see this tied to the idea of source that we talked about before, all of this makes a whole lot more sense. The entire premise of the uncut hair doctrine rests on the idea that if a woman cuts her hair even a little bit, her covering or her symbol of authority is removed. But I don't believe that this is referring to her uncut hair as that symbol of authority. I don't believe it refers to a symbol of authority at all. If Paul has uncut hair in mind, then he did a pretty poor job of establishing that. And the fact that there are so many arguments about this illustrates that Paul wasn't exactly clear if that's what he had in mind. Yeah. So as we, as we bring this to a close, in conclusion, I used to believe that Paul had uncut hair in mind when he talked about the covering, and we've talked about why that is. I no longer believe that's the case. And just to quickly summarize why. I believe Paul had a veil in mind regarding the covering, not uncut hair. That relates to the cultural practices of the day, and it relates to the reproductive physiology and their understanding of that in the day. That hair needed to be covered was based on all of those things. It was a, it was a practice of modesty. Much like women don't walk around topless in our culture and our society, women in that day and time didn't walk around with their hair uncovered. 
The time interval of praying and prophesying is when she should cover herself. In my mind, that points very, very strongly to a veil. That time interval speaks to an artificial veil that can be worn and removed when she is not praying and when she is not prophesying. Another reason why I believe that he's referring to a veil here is that practically every scholar, anthropologist, and researcher views Paul's instructions relating to a veil. They don't view it as relating to uncut hair. Especially in view of any primary sources or third-party confirmation of the uncut hair view, those don't exist. For that reason, I have a real hard time holding on to that. There's zero corroboration of that uncut hair view in the ancient context. Hair was considered an accessory reproductive organ. It was sensual and sexual in nature. And the cultural practice was for married women to wear a veil. The syntax of 1 Corinthians 11 references wives rather than all women. And to me, that builds a strong case that Paul has a veil in mind. If he had uncut hair in mind... I think it'd be much more clear. I think we'd see that corroborated within anthropology, within history, but we don't. And with all of that being said, we come back to the original question. Is this a universal and timeless admonition or is this a specifically situational uh, thing that Paul has in mind? Is this something that emanates throughout all time that we are to practice yes. even today? Based on his ancient understanding well, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, no, I, this is, first of all, this is super interesting because we had talked about it a little bit, but uh, you had never really gone over a lot of these points with me. And I, I think it's just phenomenal when you look at the context and you consider just how, I won't even know if this is culturally situated. I think there's certainly a lot to it, but it's more about their ancient understanding at that time of how things worked and how that played a huge role in figuring out how to apply Christocentric principles to things that we now today would say are not only untrue, but are just ridiculous, but that would have made sense in their day and time. And so Paul was still trying to use, it's, it's pretty layered. I mean, you've got a lot of accommodation going on. You have Paul trying to use Christ-like principles. You have ancient understandings. You have culture and you have all these different things at play. And to me, it reinforces the fact that the Bible was written a long time ago. <laughs> and it, it's yeah. when we when we try to go to the Bible to make it some sort of modern day, straightforward, plain reading law book, it, it's just so foolish of us to do that. It's so nonsensical when we really just dip our toe into some of this information. And not just in this example, but there, there are countless examples we could use to demonstrate why that's silly. But no, I think this is phenomenal, man. I, I hope that uh, our audience really appreciated you going through all this because this is just great information. Well, man, it's it's one of those things that I believe strongly for a long time. I mean, strongly enough that I would preach on it and without any consideration whatsoever as to how it might be received or who might get upset about it because it's God's truth. And if it's the truth, well, I'm going to preach the truth and I'm going to be instant in season and out of season and stand up for what's right. And just seeing how... And, and, you know, maybe it is uncut hair. Maybe that is the case. I don't believe that it is. And I think that there's way more evidence that goes against that perspective than there is that supports it now, especially. But maybe it is the case. But even if that is the case, my attitude was not what it needed to be at that point in time. And I think one of the questions I think this would be a good point to end on 
is if it's not something that's universally applicable for all time, well, then what is the application today? And I think what the application is today, it's actually very, very simple. Whenever you are conducting yourself, whether it is in your day-to-day life or especially if it's in, in the context of coming together with fellow Christians, be appropriate for the occasion. You know, don't, don't dress in such a way, you know, don't go to the beach wearing a wedding dress, you know, don't show up to a wedding, you know, wearing swim trunks, board shorts, a rash guard and a surfboard, you know, don't do those things, you know, be culturally considerate of what's going on around you. Be mindful, be appropriate, keep propriety in mind in the manner in which you conduct your actions in life and in worship and in everything else. That essentially to me seems to be the point that Paul is making. Behave yeah, properly it goes for the back cultural to, context you live in. Yeah, well, and it goes back to one word, and that's wisdom. Yes. Paul Paul was trying to use wisdom based upon the knowledge he had, the understanding he had, the culture that he lived in, and he was doing his best to follow Christ and use wisdom in that situation. And I think that's the demonstration of the whole New Testament. I think that's the point of these letters. It's to show us that we need to try to use wisdom in the situations and the cultures and the time and in the understandings that we find ourselves in. Well, and I think that's absolutely the truth, man. It's absolutely the truth because, well, and there are some people though that would balk at that. And I have had people when I've had this discussion with people that have said, well, why would the, why would Paul make that argument? Why would Paul have that in mind? I find it really hard to believe that the Holy Spirit would allow Paul to be inspired to write these things if he had the wrong thing in mind as far as reproductive physiology goes. And I'm like, well, I mean, didn't the divinely inspired author of Genesis have the wrong thing in mind when he wrote about the firmament? I mean, did the divinely inspired author of Matthew have the wrong thing in mind whenever he quotes Jesus as saying a mustard seed is the smallest seed among all seeds? I mean, we we miss the forest for the trees when we look at it in those terms and we don't allow the context of their day and time to inform us in establishing what it was they were getting at. And that Paul used wisdom to relate something that his readers would understand and know to what they may not know or fully understand, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So to say that the covering is something that persists even today, I don't believe that's the case. I do believe that this was a situationally a situational consideration that this is something that pertained to them and their culture and their time based on what they knew and they were doing the best they could with what they had to use wisdom to move through life and that's what Paul was encouraging them to do. So with that being said, do you have anything else you want to add, brother? No, that's fantastic. Good stuff. All right, man. Well, thank you for bearing with me. I feel like this is two episodes in a row where I've done the vast majority of the talking and I feel more comfortable doing that now since we have a longer runtime and we're not really worried about time constraints as much anymore. But as we sign off, we always want to thank our listeners. If you guys listen to all this and you didn't fall asleep or, or lose interest and become desperately bored, thank you so much. Yeah. We love and you. I- well, and I was going to say, we have gotten feedback that from people who actually listen to our podcast that they <laughs> like for us to continue to finish our thoughts instead of breaking it up into several different segments. Um, but as always, if you have suggestions, because it doesn't take us much time to to hit stop and record and make another episode. In fact, it's easier on us to do that because it, it's we don't have to record as many podcasts. Um, but we have been told that they would people appreciate the deep dives that we do in these lessons. 
and in these podcasts. And that's something that we really try to accomplish. There's a lot of different podcasts out there that are much shorter than ours, but our goal is to really take deep dives, take our time, not just rush through it so we can get to the next episode. So if you would, would like to see things done differently, if you like the way things are, please let us know. We're trying to figure out and get a good gauge. I mean, we're not going to always flip back and forth just based upon what one or two people say, but we're trying to get a good gauge based upon the audience that we, we have. And really with the evidence that we can see from the stats, there really doesn't seem to be that much difference. In fact, I think we have more downloads when we go a little bit longer and explore a topic in more detail. So if that's the case, or that might just be us projecting that, but if that's what we're seeing and that's what you're seeing and that's what you think, please let us know. We, we really want to hear from you either way. Absolutely. And we appreciate the feedback that you guys give us. I mean, that's the whole reason why we're doing this is because Kevin and I saw that need to have discussions like this. And sometimes those discussions don't take a whole lot of time. Sometimes they take more time. But overall, we want to put things out there that you guys are interested in, that you enjoy, that you appreciate. And we love hearing from you. That's how we decide kind of what direction we're going to go in, what guests we're going to have, what topics we're going to discuss. So we love hearing from you. Please reach out to us. Become a part of our Facebook group. Even though Kevin's not on Facebook anymore, we we love him anyway. Um, that iconoclast, he's too hip for Facebook anymore. But hit us up on that. Right. Drop us an email. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. We appreciate all of you. We love you dearly. And we will see you all soon.